Well, hello and welcome to the Deeper Podcast. My name is Reverend Sean, and I'm here with Reverend Elaine. Hey, Elaine. Hi, Sean. So we are in this series right now, which is all about relationships and what to do when they break down, when they have a flat tire, when you're struggling to um, make the spark plugs work. I'm trying to think of another car-related <laughs> metaphor, but I don't really do cars. Your plug-in electric car doesn't have any more battery in it. When you can't find a charger. Okay, so we have this, it's a series all about how do we, we strengthen our relationships. And in your message this week, Elaine, you talked a lot about loneliness. I did. That felt very relevant. I think I know exactly why you think that but I would love to hear more about that. I don't think there's anyone in my personal life with whom I've not had a conversation about feeling isolated and about a yearning and a hunger to be with other people. And I think, and not a lot about loneliness. It's incredibly vulnerable to actually own feeling lonely. And, mm -hmm. you know, we might even be afraid that that would push people away or signal to people that we're not a desirable person to be in relationship with, or there's something wrong with us. So haven't had a lot of straight up loneliness conversations, but I feel like it's underneath just about everything I hear when I'm talking to people about how they're doing. I, I agree. I talk about loneliness with like a few of the closest people in my life, but it's not something that I would talk about with the people kind of outside my inner circle, like my own experiences of loneliness. And yet it is pretty common. I was doing a little bit of research and in 2018, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study where they said 22% of all adults in the US say they are often or always feeling lonely or socially isolated. Mm -hmm. And that's 2018. So that's, you know, a fifth of the population. And in a recent study during the first year of the pandemic, that jumps to 33%. So from a fifth to a third of people reported, again, often or always feeling lonely, which is a pretty high bar. And that's not like sometimes, it's often and always. And what was even more remarkable was that 61% of 18 to 25 year olds were in mm -hmm. that category. So really, really high. We have a lot of assumptions about young people and the, the connectedness that they have online and how that might create a sense of connection, which I, I really do think it does. And yet these numbers show that there is still this deep loneliness that's going on. Yeah, that sounds right to me, Sean. When you were saying it's like something that we don't talk about, it reminded me of this excerpt from Olivia Lang's memoir, The Lonely City, where she writes, loneliness is difficult to confess difficult to categorize like depression, a state with which it often intersects. It can run deep in the fabric of a person as much a part of one's being as laughing easily or having red hair. And then again, it can be transient lapping in and out a reaction to external circumstances, like the loneliness that follows on the heels of a bereavement breakup or change in social circles. For many people, the pandemic has brought that, that kind of potentially transient loneliness as, you know, everything has been upended. And yet 
it's kind of compounded this existing loneliness that we have. I think so too. And thinking about transient, transients of loneliness, there was a way I felt alone and socially isolated in those first months or even just the pre-vaccine time of the pandemic where I was just waiting to have the magical vaccine and then we'd be done. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I felt like it was temporary. And there's something about being at this point in the pandemic and contending with loneliness. There's not the sense of just, if I could just hunker down and make it through, my life will magically reinflate back to normal. The uncertainty mixed with the loneliness mixed with winter that's hard well it because loneliness is not it's not just about the absence of social connections it's it's the internal feeling mm. that subjective experience that you're lacking the connection that you need and it's also not just about the kind of isolation and you you talk about this in your message about kind of the difference between solitude and loneliness, but there's also a piece of loneliness that is about not just being alone, but not sharing anything of meaning with others. A lot of us have been surrounded by people in this pandemic in our homes, and we can still feel incredibly lonely. And that's because we're struggling to share something of meaning with them as we're just trying to get, like, we're just trying to get by. And it was like not a, not a judgment of that experience. Just like it's hard to share something of meaning when you're in survival mode. It really is. Sean, I love what you said about loneliness and meaning. And I think so often, even when we're with people every day, uh, whoever those people are, it can just be really challenging and it can come at such an energetic cost to find some third thing to relate to someone about that feels meaningful, that generates a sense of purpose or meaning or momentum uh, that doesn't Joy just- Joy or listen. playfulness or pleasure. Joy or playfulness, right. Yeah. yeah, where it doesn't just feel rote or flat or like terrain you've trod across a million times already. Yeah, procedural, perfunctory, perfunctory just like quotidian. Mm -hmm. to use a lot of big words there. Yes. <laughs> I think we should dive into the first part of uh, your message. That sounds good. I don't personally know anyone who could say they're doing really great this January. For so many of us, the Omicron wave has been really hard and it's been very isolating. I know that this moment looks different for everyone. Some of us are with the same people all the time or the same one person. Some of us are alone much of the time. Some of us are just out there in the mix with all the people in the world because of our job or because it's just too unbearably soul-crushing to isolate for this long. A couple of weeks ago, our family found ourselves all quarantined together, as so many of us have been lately, after a COVID exposure at my son's preschool not only were we all stuck together at home, but preschool was closed for the next 10 days. By this point in the pandemic, this is familiar terrain, figuring out how to do family life and stay on top of work somehow with two kids in the mix, one of whom is a four-year-old who's constantly needing to move his body and is always searching for a playmate or 
something to destroy if no playmates present themselves. And we're doing all the things that we've learned to do by now, trying to fold in self-care to help us feel more alive and feel less stuck, constantly letting go of our expectations and surrendering to what is, which I'll admit I'm often doing with no small amount of self-pity. A super helpful tool for helping me feel unstuck has been music. And I use dance music to make boring domestic tasks feel more bearable, like getting the dishes done after dinner when the sun has already been down for a while and everybody's feeling kind of drowsy and done with the day. And so during this particular most recent quarantine time, I put my phone nice and close to the sink so I could really hear those tunes while I was doing dishes. And oh no, some water splashed into the USB port, that spot where you plug in your phone to charge it, which led to not being able to charge my phone, which led to it dying. And then I was, I was still in jail. I mean, pardon me, I was in quarantine with my children in my home, but without access to my phone, without access to those group text threads and phone calls and other social apps that have been lifelines for me for the past two years. Extra isolated, extra disconnected, just yuck. Feeling disconnected, lonely, feeling isolated, invisible. These are really painful human experiences. They're hard on our bodies, on our psyches, and on our souls. We are beings who evolved as deeply relational creatures. And so feeling connected for us is really about survival. Feeling seen and known, that sense of belonging and connection, these are fundamental needs for human beings. And in their absence, we really suffer. When we feel lonely and disconnected, the pain that we experience, it's not just emotional. It turns out that those feelings of social disconnection, they actually light up the same neural pathways as physical pain. When we feel socially isolated, excluded, or invisible, it hurts. Loneliness hurts. What do you think of when you think of loneliness? Is there like a picture of loneliness in your mind? a story that you carry about what loneliness is and what fixes it. Personally, the first thing that pops into my mind is a person who's actually all alone in the space. In my head, for whatever reason, it's someone sitting alone at a kitchen table, gazing out the window. And the unexamined story I have about that person is that they're lonely due to the absence of other people in the space. So I'm basically conflating solitude and loneliness. And if you were to ask me if those were the same things, I would definitely tell you no. And I might prattle on about the spiritual benefits of solitude. But deep down in my subconscious, pre-thinking self, I still get these things confused. Solitude, of course, can be not only just fine, it can be hugely rejuvenating, healing, generative even essential to find our balance in life. There's nothing necessarily lonely about being alone. Because loneliness isn't about being alone. Loneliness is about an experience of disconnection, unwanted disconnection. 
And often loneliness feels especially lonely in the presence of other people. Feeling lonely at a party, in a workplace, feeling lonely in our family, in our friendships, lonely in a partnership, a marriage, feeling lonely in our pain or in our fear. We experience spiritual loneliness when we can't seem to get access to that sense of oneness with everything, or we can't feel God's presence in a time of struggle, or walk through that walk through the woods feels empty instead of connecting. Loneliness is an experience of disconnection, and it's a part of the human experience. And today we're going to reflect on some spiritual tools for navigating these experiences of loneliness in our relationship. But before we go there, I just want to take a moment here to really consciously note that there are some relationships that feel bad to us because they're actively doing us harm. And there are some toxic relationships that simply cannot be repaired or redeemed. And abuse in relationships is never to be tolerated. And if you're experiencing abuse, or if you want to talk to someone, we're going to put a link in the chat to Crossroads Safe House, which provides support locally here in Northern Colorado around domestic violence and interpersonal abuse. It's just a hard thing to talk about loneliness, even when we're talking about the healthiest of relationships, because there's stigma around it. We feel like there's something wrong with us. It's hard on our self-image, our sense of self-worth to admit that we feel lonely. But it's essential to talk about it because when we don't, when we don't name it, we can go to dangerous places when our loneliness goes unchecked. Social neuroscientist John Cacioppo reminds us that as a social species, our brains have evolved to react to the experience of being pushed out to the margins socially. The experience of feeling like an outsider by going to a place of self-preservation. Our body interprets feeling left out, feeling disconnected as a threat to the point that even when we really want connection deep down, our brain can keep trying to suppress our impulse towards connection by pushing us towards self-protection and putting up armor. And then we find ourselves isolating, afraid to reach out or show vulnerability. We end up feeling even more alone and more defensive and sometimes choosing things to help us numb our feelings instead of feeling them and moving through them. And sometimes this isolating, self-preserving mode, it further calcifies these stories that we're holding, stories about who we are, stories about who someone else is, stories that keep us stuck and lonely and they keep our compassion at bay and they keep possibility away. We're just going to pause you for a second, Elaine, because I'd love to talk a little bit about what you're saying here. Because what you're getting at is this deep desire, which is actually hardwired into us for relationship. Like we, that, like we cannot exist outside of relationship when they look at our brains. <laughs> There are parts of our brains that light up in the same ways that that they light up when we're hungry, when we're desiring social connection. It is like baked into us. And yet, it can be a struggle to figure out what to do 
when we experience this loneliness. And you were talking about how, even though we have this desire to connect, we, we try to protect ourselves by putting up an armor because we'll, we're fearful of what that connection might bring. And if we might feel even more isolated after we connect. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I was reading Vivek Murthy's book together, which is all about loneliness. And one of the things that he finds about loneliness is that when we experience loneliness, it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, Mm -hmm. a vicious cycle, because that experience of loneliness actually degrades our self-perception of worthiness, worthy of connecting, being connected to other people, which makes it less likely that I'm going to reach out to other people. My experience of loneliness, when I experience that pain, that hunger for connection, and then I don't get that connection that I desire, it actually rewires our brains to experience pain. And so that mm-hmm. every time we move closer to someone, we experience a pain. Th- that seems really bleak. It does. It does. It's a hard place to be in, to be stuck in that cycle. You know what that reminds me of, Sean? You know, I didn't mention this in the sermon, but one of my places of really clear pandemic loneliness was a year ago. So it was last pandemic winter when we were doing remote schooling when no one had been vaccinated yet, we were really in the thick of it. And in my marriage, I realized that I was feeling lonely. No one was being mean. Nothing overtly bad was happening. But I think my husband and I, especially parenting two small children and never having contact with anyone else, we were so desperate to try to meet our own needs in the very little amount of downtime we had at the end of the day that we were not connecting with each other when the kids went to bed. And I realized that I felt lonely. It took me a long time to name that. And I think some of those self-protective things I did is maybe I was, gave him the cold shoulder. or I hoped he noticed the absence of my bids for connection. Or then I would offer a bid for connection, but it would be just this really like weak, anemic, bid that he might not even pick up on so that I didn't get my feelings hurt if he wasn't interested in watching a movie or whatever. And there really was the snowball effect. And I remember there was one afternoon we were sitting on the patio together and I had gotten to such a point of frustration. I remember exactly where I was because it was so hard to break that cycle and I didn't have a solution. I just had lots of blame and hurt feelings. And I just said, I am feeling really lonely in our marriage. And I don't think Jason had any idea. I think that we were just, I wasn't giving off any. I was trying so hard to both communicate my loneliness and to protect my feelings that I think whatever signals I was putting out there were pretty weak or like hard to interpret. And that was a real turning point for us to start having a conversation about, you know, how I was doing, what was going on in our marriage, how hard it was to be doing this pandemic parenting and be so isolated. But I remember that moment so clearly of naming my loneliness because I don't think I've done anything that vulnerable in a really long time in my relationship. It felt kind of terrifying. 
I, I'm, I'm just thinking about how admitting that loneliness, if, if my partner said that to me, how I would probably start feeling defensive about my relationship. What happened once you admitted that? Jason just sat there and took it in. I shared a lot then about how I had been feeling and he just listened. And then he said, could we please not try to solve this right now? Just let me take it in. And I thought that was so brilliant that we didn't go into problem solving mode. We both just needed to sit with what was going on. And that made all the difference. We didn't actually troubleshoot anything in that conversation. We just sat together. I'm guessing it would have been impossible to troubleshoot it in that situation. Like you're, would... you're like, you're admitting something like that's a lot of energy. You're waiting for your partner to receive it. Like that's vulnerable. It's, it's hard to both name the problem and come to the solution at the same time. Especially when you, it's hard to imagine what the solution might be. It is. I don't know what was going on in inside of him, but Sean, what you just named about the kind of defensiveness it might bring up to, to hear that your partner had been feeling that way. When our defenses come up, sometimes the best we can do is just to not roll with all of our defenses and to just stop. And I love that we're just like diving into the inner parts of your marriage right now. I know, um, I have to... <laughs> I'll ask for Jason's consent for us to put this out there. So if you're hearing this right now, it means that my partner's consent is in play. Is I'm guessing that in that moment where he received you in a really beautiful way, it's really beautiful for him to have said that. And I'm guessing he followed up and that you two were able to, to move through this in a way that makes sense for you, is that I imagine in that moment you experienced a reciprocity from him that you hadn't been feeling before, even if he, he didn't do anything wrong, right? Because loneliness is, is our own inter, is our in, internal mm -hmm. orientation to the external world. But I'm guessing you experienced a reciprocity there. Oh, I did. I felt so connected, right? If loneliness is an experience of disconnection, to just be heard and to have him be with me, that was it. Like it was, I don't wish we would have, tried to dive into problem solving. I felt accompanied and connected and it was perfect. One of the hallmarks of relationships that, that unlocks an experience of belonging and, and that really combat loneliness are relationships that have, have that feeling of reciprocity baked into them. That sense of when I have something to speak, you listen and I do that for you that there's that kind of a fluid sense of like underneath it all, we have each other. Even if how we have each other is different, even like it's not like we need our relationships to be equal. Relationships with our kids, especially young kids, are not equal, mm -hmm. but there is a reciprocity to them. And it reminds me of this, this quote from Ron Sharp, who says, friendship is not about what someone can do for you. It's who and what the two of you become in each other's presence. That's really beautiful. That makes me think about there are some friends with whom I feel like I become my best self. And I love how I feel being myself in those friendships. 
And I can think of other friendships where I am just trying too hard or I feel guarded or I'm second guessing myself. And, you know, it's the same me in both of those relationships. Uh, but it, all those relationships create something different. And I often leave the exchanges either feeling filled up or connected or with my inner critic just going to town. The second half of your message, you get into kind of a practical barrier to connection and how to kind of undo that, which is all about the, the stories we carry and how those can get in the way of being in relationships. Let's dive into the second half of your message. All right. One summer, we learned that a neighbor down the street had a kid who was exactly my daughter's age. We had connected with them a few times. They seemed really nice. And we were excited to know them more and hopefully to make friends. That's kind of a vulnerable place, right? That feeling of liking someone else and wanting them to like you so you can become friends. So we invited them over for popsicles one afternoon after school got out. And when that afternoon rolled around, our neighbor, she texted me to say they were running a few minutes late. And I texted back, no problem. And I shared our street number again. And there was no response. Okay, that's, that's cool. My daughter asked to wait outside for our visitors. I said, yes, she's out there for about 30 minutes. I think she made a handmade sign to welcome them to our house. No one shows up. I decide that maybe the mom has some challenges with time management, but that's fine. I do too sometimes. So I text her to check in assure her that it's fine, that they're late, we have no plans, no response. I text back and ask what kind of popsicles they like. Nothing. So my daughter asks if she can bike down to their house. So she does. And she comes back with an observation that someone is, was pulling out of the driveway and it seemed like no one was home. She's really deflated. And so an hour later, this is like an hour after the beginning, I text again asking if she wants to reschedule. I totally understand. I also call her and leave her a voicemail. My daughter is crying because she's so disappointed. She'd been waiting all week to discover this new friend on the street. And at this point, I'm really tempted to blame this other person for my child's pain because who is this late without saying anything? And just as I've completely given up, about two hours after we originally agreed to meet up, I hear a bing on my phone. It's a text, and it's from the mom. And the text reads, Sorry it didn't work out today. Maybe we could try another time. What? Sorry it didn't work out today? I've been hounding you with prompts to come over that you seem to have totally ignored, and now... My little girl is beside herself with disappointment and you are sorry that it didn't work out. So I'm really, I'm actively willing myself not to draw conclusions with so little information. There's a total dearth of information here. But my brain is also just spinning off in its own direction. And I find myself thinking, I, I wonder if she's been drinking. Is this family in crisis? And despite my better judgment, I let my mind weave a story of total chaos at their house and how 
probably in the future, in all these years that we're going to share a block together, their house won't be a safe place for my kids to go and play and it'll be awkward and I'll probably end up being the safe house for her children. And I know that I don't actually know these people, but my brain is just spinning these wild stories. And I get a call then later in the evening and it's from the neighbor mom. And it turns out that I am not the only person with whom she has been having weird text exchanges. And it is because she just got a new phone. I guess there's a phone theme here this morning. <laughs> but most of her incoming texts and phone calls were still routing to her old phone, which she'd packed up in a box to send back to the manufacturer. And she discovered all of my attempts at communication later that day when she went to check her old phone, along with lots of other messages from other people whom she had experienced as mysteriously silent all week. And it turns out she'd wondered why I hadn't responded to her. She was really confused. Apparently, she'd sent messages to me that I never got. Anyway, mystery solved. We make inferences all the time about other people based on the information we have. We can't help it. It's what we're built to do. And it turns out that while we're really good at creating stories and judgments about other people, we are not very good at creating accurate stories and judgments about other people. And even with those people who are closest to us, Behavioral scientist Nick Epley has been researching the ways that we guess what's going on in someone else's mind. He and his colleagues, they conducted this study with couples who had been together for an average of 10 years. So they probably know each other pretty well, right? And in the study, they asked one partner to predict how the other partner would respond to some simple questions. Questions like, I would rather spend a quiet evening at home rather than going out to a party. Or our family is too heavily in debt. And the partner asking the question, they estimated ahead of time that they would do great. They would really accurately guess what the other person would think about that question. And it turns out that they only guessed what was going on in the other person's mind accurately 25% of the time. That's not very good. We have huge confidence in our ability to infer what someone close to us thinks and feels. But this is often not the case. It turns out that mind reading is not really our thing. And to make things even harder, we don't even think to ask things of our closest people in a kind the kind of in the kind of direct and simple questions that we might ask of a stranger. We stop being curious and we just keep feeding these old stories. And this can leave us feeling really lonely and stuck in our relationships. We're creatures of narrative. <clears throat> I'm going to take a drink of water here. Stories help anchor us. They help us make meaning. Stories help us understand who we are and help us understand the world around us. And we cannot do life without stories. We don't have a soul without stories. Um, okay, I just said that. I don't know if that's, don't quote me on that one. And our brains can't help but to create stories. But sometimes when we are feeling lonely, disconnected, 
frustrated or sad in our relationships. We have to let go of the stories that we're holding in order to make space in our hearts. To make space in our hearts for possibility, space for tenderness, space for connection, space for a new way. Buddhist nun Pema Chodron calls this practice dropping the storyline. I wonder what storylines you might be holding these days. Maybe it's a story about why a friend is reaching out with less frequency or seems distracted or prickly. Maybe it's a story about why our partner always wants to unwind by themselves in the evening. Or on the other hand, why our partner is always stuck to us like glue. Maybe it's a story about why the teenager in our life looks at us with irritation and contempt sometimes or why our boss seems so difficult and unreasonable lately, what might, we, what might we discover if we dared to let go of the stories we're holding in our relationships? I don't mean denying what we're feeling, but I mean let, experimenting with letting go of the stories we've created around it, especially our story about what's going on in someone else's mind and heart. We can still tune into our feelings, feel them and honor them and experience the messiness and difficulty of a situation, but we stop short of letting our feelings harden and grasping onto assumptions or labels or stories that come whizzing into our brain and that send us into that defensive, self-protective place. Even when the thing we most deeply want is actually connection, Instead of following a tempting storyline at hand, we could get curious about another person's world, curious about what needs they're trying to meet, remembering that our vulnerability and pain connects us with the shared tenderness among all human beings, a tenderness we share even with those people who are hard for us. They have tender hearts too. I have to admit, this is pretty easy to talk about, but it can be really, really hard to practice in the moment. Even in those petty little moments, diving into those practice storylines, it's so tempting. So I also want to offer a tool, a very practical tool that I have found very helpful personally in getting myself to a place where I can even consider stopping and dropping the storyline. It's a practice that Resma Menachem describes in my grandmother's hands called stop, drop, and roll. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. Stop, drop, and roll. It's very helpful for settling yourself when you are emotionally on fire. When you might do or say something you might regret later, or when a situation is escalating. So we're going to walk through it together here and just if an invitation here, if you want to experiment with this right now, you could bring to line to mind a storyline about uh, a storyline that you're holding in this particular moment, a storyline and a relationship in your life, and try this on. So first is stop. Stop whatever you're saying. Stop whatever you're thinking or doing. Just let go of the storyline and don't go any further down the same emotional and mental path. Just stop. And then drop 
back. Pay attention to what you're feeling in your body. Drop into what is going on around you. Drop into where the situation seems headed and how you're helping to push it in that direction. And then ask yourself, is this where I want this interaction to go? And if not, you can say out loud, let's not go where I think we're headed. Let's figure out something different. So you stop what you're saying, thinking, or doing. You drop into your experience, drop into the present moment of your surroundings. And then finally, just roll with whatever you notice is happening in your body, but without fighting, flighting, or flee. Fighting, fleeing, or freezing. Just keep breathing through it. Don't try to control it or run from it or squelch it or tear it to pieces. And you might find that you weep or laugh or shudder or moan or you want to hug yourself. And if so, just roll with it. Just let go and do it. And with some luck, you might just find yourself in a more settled place than where you started. A place of softness and receptivity. A place where you can offer yourself some compassion and curiosity. And maybe even offer the other person some compassion and some curiosity. And consider the next move in the dance of relationship. In these times that feel like they might just crush us with disconnection and uncertainty. Where even in the company of others, loneliness can encroach and weigh us down. The hard place doesn't have to be the end of the story. Let us remember that we were each made for love and relationship. We were each made for connection. It's in our DNA and it's inscribed on our souls. And every day is an opportunity to stop, drop, and roll, and then just let go of our tired storylines so that we might generate more love and more connection through tenderness and curiosity. I'm so glad to be together with you in this. May it be so. Amen. As I was listening to that second part, and I love the the practical, the stop, the drop, and the roll. I've been trying that with my partner. I think it de-escalated it a little bit. But what I realized is that so often I am in relationship with my own projections of the other person more than the other person. Absolutely. And that is like a falsehood. And yet it's a safe falsehood because it's predictable. And so I like wonder like how you... because. I feel like you as someone who's really like radically accepting and also like spontaneous. Do you have any insights in how we can like get closer to being comfortable with another person's like difference or getting away from being the, the comfort of our projection and be able to just be open to who they are? Yeah. Let me think about that. Some of the things that I do in my own head is I often... This is kind of golden rule-ish, which the golden rule isn't great treating people how you would want to be treated because you should really treat them how they want to be treated. But it does help me to turn the tables and think about the generosity with which I would like for the people closest to me, especially who often see all of my behaviors, how generous I would like for them to be with me and to try to offer that generosity. 
I have to be honest though, Sean, part of why I like the stop, drop and roll is because I know what it's like to get caught up in that's in a script. And for me, the, the story is often about, oh, you always do this thing. And then I'm so put upon and I'm the victim. The other day I came home and no one was in the house and it was time for us to leave for another engagement, but my partner wasn't there. That's like, I hate that. Right. I'm going to join you there. I realized only an hour later when we revisited it, that part of what I was scared of is that he was dead. I made up the story that something horrible had happened to him. So I was really frustrated when it turns out he came home from a jog that was extra long and hadn't gotten my messages. It was a very understandable miscommunication. I was just mad. And there's something in a yucky way, it's sort of satisfying to be mad and you feel you're right and the other person's wrong. And that's a story that it asks for you to feed it in a way because it, it there's no vulnerability on my end when someone else is wrong and I'm right. And I feel like I have control of the narrative. And so I use stop, drop and roll then just like a week ago. And the stop for me is the most important part. Just quit it. Just don't say the thing. Don't do the thing. Just find some way to breathe and ground myself and give myself some space and distance so that I can get some perspective. And, and honestly, to force myself to fall out of the romance I have with my story of rightness. And then, honestly, at that point, I often just get to, I don't know. And, you know, and getting to that point of saying, I don't want this to go the usual way. And then I often just come to my partner or to my kids with that, like, this thing happened. It felt bad. I don't want to go down our usual road. And then just pass the ball and see what comes of that conversation. You need to give yourself space to react in a way that isn't going to set the dominoes off. That's right. And there's this part of me that thinks then I have to have a solution or something to offer. And I've just sort of given up on that personally. This isn't any philosophy I've read a book about, but I'm just, I'm tired of having solutions. I have so much decision fatigue. I'm tired of having discipline. I just want to come to the people I care about and say, I have feelings about this. This is the story I made up. This is where I don't want to go. Can you help me figure this out? I'm done with having answers. That's the title of your book i'm done with having answers <laughs> just thinking about how if someone who i was in a relationship with came to me and offered that how i don't think i would feel defensive what would be evoked in me is caring mm -hmm. i do care it feels like a soft underbelly like i'm showing mm -hmm. you my soft underbelly kind of caring mm -hmm. because it's a caring of saying you're naming your commitment to the relationship and you're acknowledging that the <laughs> that the solution, I guess, is something that you're going to create between the two of you and that you need the other person for. Mm. So it's really 
<laughs> showing up. It's totally letting go of control. It feels like a surrender caring is what it feels like to me when I do that. And the, and I think the surrender piece also is like an in, it's an invitation, right? It's a surrender of like, I don't have control of this. I don't want to have control of this, mm-hmm. but I want, I want us to do something together. Yes. And so it's inviting that reciprocity into the moment of, I can't see a way out of this. This is how, this is what's going on for me. And I want us to figure that out together. And I know that we have this pattern of maybe going here and I'm not blaming the fact that we might, that we've gone there. I'm just naming that I don't want to go there. The underlying message is I trust you and I think you have wisdom. Even just naming like, hey, I don't want to fight about this. Mm. I don't want to fight about this. Like what, what can we do? Like this weekend, we had a we had a huge, you know, argument with our thirteen year old. The place we got to was both of us needed to compromise, but we needed to get to a place in which both of us wanted to compromise. Mm. <laughs> and as as a parent, when you're trying to get your kid to do things, which you need to do all the time, which is a you know eighty seven percent of parenting, some days seem like trying to get your kids to do things. Mm-hmm. It's like so aggravating when they're not doing the thing, but that can bleed over into all of the like discretionary things in which like you, you don't actually need that control. And yet you're accustomed to it because of your role and because of all the other things that you truly do need them to do. But yet, because I'm in that role, I get caught up. And so it's like needing to figure out how we could both get to a place where we actually were okay with, with compromising, that we actually felt the connection that actually would allow us to both do that. That's really beautiful. And I can very much relate to that situation. There's something so healing about relinquishing control in order to create the next step with someone else. It's why playfulness is such a great tool because you can't be defensive and playful at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so it like it already invites a posture in which you're willing to have that back and forth, that reciprocity, that, that lightheartedness of an approach. And so figuring out like how you embody that with each other can be really helpful because we're having these difficult moments of dropping the story. I think someone said in the 10 o'clock service conversation, what they say to their partner a lot is, well, the story I'm making up is like this. And the, I just, the way they said it had this kind of like flippancy that was like playfulness. It was kind of like making fun of themselves. Like, you know, well, the story I thought was you were dead. And, you know, yeah, that, that made me upset. The story is often ridiculous. The story I made up is that you really wanted to hurt my feelings and shut me out by not sharing the creamer for the coffee this morning, which may be how you actually felt, but you say it out loud and it's absurd. Right. And, and I'm thinking about how a lot of times these, actually this is something we were to get up, get, was a good preview of an upcoming service is a lot of times the, the conflicts that we get into in these relationships are, are actually our own recurring pain points. Mm-hmm. Like my partner and I, we each have, you know, for me, the, the conflict is usually about like, 
am I stupid or did I fall down on what I was supposed to do? Was I wrong about something? And for him, it's always, am I lovable? Mm. And so no matter what the topic of the conversation or the conflict is, that is the actual conflict that's going around and around. And yet, if we keep talking about creamer, we're not going to get to that. This has been a great conversation, Elaine. Thank you for hopping into the pod with me. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Sean. Thanks. Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Deeper Podcast. Each week, I'm so grateful to be able to record these conversations, to dive deeper with my colleagues, and to know that there's hundreds of you out there who are listening every single week. If you're one of our listeners, we'd love you to rate the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed and leave a review. All of that helps other people find the podcast. And if there's someone in your life that you think, you know what, they might appreciate this conversation about loneliness or maybe it might be helpful for them to have the stop, drop, and roll technique introduced into their repertoire, why not share the link to this podcast? It's a great way of starting a conversation that is meaningful. We get to do this, these great things like this podcast because of the generous support of people within our community. If you're not already part of the community that makes it possible, I invite you to consider doing so. You can find your way to donate at foothillsuu.org give. There's many ways to do it, and we are appreciative of every single one of you who is doing that. Next week on the podcast, Reverend Gretchen is sharing a message all about apologies. How do we make a good apology? How apologies can be a bridge to mending relationships. You're not going to want to miss that. So until next week, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.